I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman with a sense of history. And I'm also a Londoner. And today is a day of great historical significance for London. London will become Europe's capital. Mm, Having right. cleared away the outdated, mm. we've got mile after mile and acre after acre of land for our future prosperity. No other city in the world has got right in its centre such an opportunity for profitable progress. So it's important that the right people mastermind the new London. That was a clip from a film called The Long Good Friday, a London-based thriller which came out in 1980. Bob Hoskins plays an East End gangster on the cusp of a new, money-hungry decade, hoping to capitalise on the desolation of London's Docklands by selling parts of them off to a pair of American gangsters. Hoskins' character realises that the Docklands, which look hopelessly vacant, are a massive resource. In his eyes, emptiness equals opportunity. In this episode of Car, we'll be taking a journey east through London's Docklands and back through time, from the desolation of pre-development Canary Wharf to the buried gold of Silvertown and out through Beckton into an imaginary Vietnam. I've been interested in the area for a while now. I'm drawn to those parts of the Docklands which have avoided redevelopment and which, as a result, seem empty, overlooked. In an urban context, empty spaces have two almost paradoxical connotations. On the one hand, they are a void, a symbol of civic failure. There's something abhorrent about emptiness, as in the old metaphysical notion of the horror vacui, that line attributed to Aristotle which states that nature abhors a vacuum. On the other hand, empty spaces are a sign of opportunity and latent potential. They can be built upon or used as film sets. In his book The Empty Space, the director Peter Brook describes the dramatic potential that lies within empty space. His book opens with the line, I can take any empty space and call it a bare stage. In the Docklands, this artistic impetus to reinvent and recreate empty spaces rubs up against economic imperatives. The government-led drives towards filling those voids with new buildings, new growth. In this episode, I'll be talking to people with a shared interest in the docks and looking at the ways in which this post-industrial zone has been a place of speculation, of artistic rejuvenation and discovery, as well as the erasure of an industrial past. So this is a travel programme in a way. We're going on a trip from west to east and seeing what we find. Our first stop is the Isle of Dogs. Chapter 1. The Bananas Are Long Gone In the early 80s, my dad John was working in the office of the architect Terry Farrell. He was working on a redevelopment called Limehouse Studios, a vast television studio built in an old banana warehouse. He remembers visiting there in the early 80s, before any redevelopment had taken place. 
it was very strange. It was like going to, I don't know, it was almost like you imagine Hiroshima was like if the building survived. It was completely desolate. Um, there were piles of rubble, weeds, nobody. I mean, it was just a, a sort of desert. You had this very strange sense that you were on your own. I mean, you had to sort of drive through, I seem to remember Limehouse, and go down a road which was sort of noisy and bustly and full of life and, you know, not particularly sort of prosperous, but, you know, vibrant. Mm. And suddenly you were kind of thrust into something that was eerily quiet and desolate. And mm. it's difficult to imagine now anywhere in London could be so close to the centre and so large and so neglected in a way. The idea that London might ever become empty belongs to the domain of apocalyptic science fiction, of the War of the Worlds or 28 Days Later. But during the early 80s, it's what the Docklands felt like, a landscape emptied out by mass exodus. I find this notion of a dead city perversely compelling, like something out of the comics I used to read as a kid, Judge Dredd, Spawn or Batman. I'm even jealous that my dad got to see it. My dad shows me a book with photographs. Right on the edge of the water, the warehouse before its redevelopment, was a squat, basic structure three stories high, bluntly industrial and totally nondescript. The building was raw concrete, with bits of steel protecting the columns. You know, it was just huge, empty spaces with, with very basic shutters and doors and, and steel windows that were decaying. Further into the city, in buildings like Butler's Wharf by Tower Bridge, the original features of the Docklands buildings have been preserved, a dubious badge of their authenticity. But Limehouse Studios belong to a different age, one with a not-so-nostalgic view of the industrial past. I look at pictures of the new facade which my dad helped design. Its blocky arches and gridded windows remind me of Tetris. It's a very geometric and strikingly muscular design. What I suppose is, is understandable in this case is that in a sea of sort of rubble and, and desolation that, you know, if you did develop one building, that you wanted to make it distinctive. In 1988, five years after it opened, Limehouse Studios was sold. The whole area was flattened to make way for a New York-style grid of skyscrapers, plazas and buried arcades that exist there today, and which doesn't really feel like part of London at all. It feels like an imaginary American city, a dated vision of the future. Instead of working with the emptiness of the docks, this scorched earth process of demolition and rebuilding stamped it out altogether. Chapter 2 Looking for Gold in Silvertown. Uh. 
A few miles further east of Canary Wharf is Silvertown, a two-mile stretch of docks, factories and residential areas built in the middle of the 19th century. In 2014, a huge phase of redevelopment will commence, but for the time being it remains relatively untouched, largely taken up by wastelands and abandoned factories. It's as close as you're likely to get to how the Docklands felt when my dad first visited. A few weeks ago I went for a walk there with Matt, a London tour guide well versed in the history of the city centre. Our first stop was the Millennium Mills, a massive abandoned flour mills by the side of the Royal Victoria Dock. This was a hugely important location for Derek Jarman, who shot most of his 1987 film The Last of England here. Standing directly outside Millennium Mills, but the view's somewhat obscured by like a white tower structure thing, and it's, yeah. um, and there's lots of fences and other bits kind of between us and the mills. Um, but this is where Derek Jarman shot a lot of um, the scenes for The Last of England. He used the roof, he used the grounds, and he used the keys right by the water. The last of England uses the abandoned Docklands to create a sense of ruination and despair, of beauty crushed by violence. It blends Super 8 home movie footage with scenes filmed in the mills, including the climactic moment towards the end, where Tilda Swinton rips off her wedding dress by the side of the Royal Victoria Dock. There isn't much plot to speak of. Instead, it's a painful, elegiac, collage-like response to what Jarman saw as the destruction of Englishness by Thatcherism, a world where outcasts and minorities are systematically oppressed by the powers that be. My teacher said, there are more walls in England than Berlin, Johnny. What were we to do in those crumbling acres? Die of boredom? Or recreate ourselves? emerging from the chrysalis, all scarlet and turquoise as death's heads from chip plants, moths of the night. If the developers saw the Docklands as a site of speculation, then so did Jarman. But instead of shiny new buildings and potential profit, he saw a metonym for the decline of England and of the weird persistence of a kind of artistic vitality in the face of a wholesale destruction of hope. A year after Jarman's film came out, the mills were put to another altogether different use by the musician Jean-Michel Jarre. Jarre's Destination Docklands performances were cheesily elaborate affairs accompanied by massive light shows. Rather than being the set of a film which would later be projected, the mills themselves became a massive projection screen, a blank canvas for overblown light and magic. Do you know Jean-Michel Jarre? The French, like, techno, like, super naff techno musician. No. He, like, does stage shows where he's surrounded by, like, hundreds of synthesizers, and he does, like, the laser harp, where he's got lasers 
and every time he puts his hand through a laser, it goes like, Neow. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he stands on the front of the stage going like, Neow. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. He did a massive show here called Destination Docklands, and he used the Millennium Mills as like this big projection screen. And there were 200,000 people in the crowd. Whoa! Yeah. Nuts. That's mad. There were fireworks and songs with grandiose titles like Industrial Revolution Overture and Third Rendezvous. Jar, like Jarman, exploited the emptiness of the mills to imagine a new, if totally different, near future. For Jar and Jarman, the emptiness of the Docklands were attractive, picturesque, and completely divorced from any sense of what it was like to actually live here. The Docklands were a blank slate on which to project their own ideas. Matt and I headed away from the mills and towards the river. He explained that the docks were partly built as a response to widespread thievery by underpaid dock workers. It wasn't, it wasn't just the volume of goods that was coming in. It's because about 25 35% of all the goods that came into the Port of London Authority got stolen while they were waiting on the river. People would go up in little boats and they'd have arrangements with all the men who worked on the boats and they would chuck stuff out yeah. at a certain time of day. Not at a certain time of day, at a certain time in the tide. And okay, yeah. Because these, the watermen and lightermen and whatnot knew the river, knew the the sort of, um, what's it called, tidal patterns of the river so well, they would know exactly if they chucked it off at this point of the low tide, at this spot, it would wash up on Queen Hyde or on Gabriel's Wharf or on X, Y and Z at this particular what's, time the next day. Well, so they just trusted it to the river? They trusted it to the river. That's a bit risky. Well, it's free stuff anyway, you know, if, <laughs> yeah, if you only yeah. get 50% yeah, of it, that's it's true, still... Yeah. still so then how, how did they... So then because, yeah. because of this like incredibly large-scale uh, pilfering, mm. they, uh, as well as the volume of, of goods and ships, they decided that they needed to build um, very, very official docks and very, very uh, hardcorely secured warehouses to store the goods. The banks of the Thames are still a place where people hope to uncover riches. The claggy mud that lies beneath the tarmac and concrete of the Docklands is studded with fragments of the area's history. Matt and I walked down to the riverbank at Silvertown to see what we could find. What? No, no. no. Except for the, the bucket of gold we found earlier. While we were snooting around the shingle and river mud, we were approached by a man called Barry. He was mudlarking on the lookout for gold. Yeah. I found some gold the other day, yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe it. It's only a little brooch like, but it was like I took it to the jewellers, like 22 karat gold. Wow. Yeah. On this stretch here. Yeah, along here. Just I look down it. Once in a blue moon you get something like that. Yeah. Know? I mean you very yeah. rarely find something like that. I mean you get a lot of like broken pottery in that here, obviously like some nice pottery you get here, but you know, that's about it. I mean I've been in here every day like, you know, and Quite heavy, and I thought. So how long have you been 
doing this? Not long. Yeah. Only a couple of weeks. Because right. I live local, see? So you, you've been doing it for two weeks and you've already found a yeah. big lump of gold? Yeah. Amazing. I can't believe it. And it weren't even that shiny, really. I just yeah. bent down, I thought it looks a funny shape, picked it up. Yeah. And I thought, I cleaned it off a bit, like, I thought, bloody yeah. hell, it looks like gold. Yeah. When I took it to the jewellers, he went, whoa. <laughs> First of all, you can only dig down to three inches, first of all, but after two years, yeah. you can dig down to seven inches. Oh, no. Silly, <laughs> isn't it? As That's... if people are going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you find a, an all the, all the gold there, what are you going to do? Take it to the museum? <laughs> yeah. Because they reckon it belongs to the... They reckon it belongs to the... Um, uh, the crown, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any gold... It doesn't belong to anyone, though, does you know? it? No, who's going to do that? I mean, you get a, a rare gold coin, what are you going to take it yeah. to the museum? So they put it in their window. The reason this idea seems so absurd is that London's mud is, in itself, a kind of museum. Buried within it are countless exhibits. It's a grubby, unsorted archive of the past. Barry was convinced that if we could prise open the bricks of the riverbank, we would find all kinds of riches buried in the mud. There's a link here with Derek Jarman's interest too. He was fascinated by alchemy the idea that base matter could be translated into gold. In a way, this is what the disused Docklands represented. They were an opportunity for change, for transformation, for filling emptiness and utilising disuse. They weren't exactly filled with gold, but in their seeming dereliction they did possess a very real, if latent, kind of value. Chapter 3. From Beckton to Vietnam. Kiss me goodbye and write me while I'm gone. Goodbye, my sweetheart. Hello, Vietnam. An out-of-town shopping park sits on the site of an old gasworks, once the largest in Europe. Beckton Gasworks closed in 1969 and for years stood empty, its soil contaminated with hazardous waste, its reinforced concrete buildings slowly crumbling. The first time I watched Full Metal Jacket, I assumed it was filmed where it was set in Vietnam, but it was filmed here in Beckton. It's amazing what a few strategically placed palm trees can do. I visited Richard Daniels, the Stanley Kubrick archivist, at the Archives and Special Collections Centre at University of the Arts, London. Welcome to the Archives Strong Room. Oh, it's really windy in here. Yeah, well there's units on... Richard takes me through to the rooms where the archive is housed. There are dozens and dozens of shelves stacked with grey cardboard boxes each filled with material relating to Kubrick's films. These are like the photos of the gasworks where the art department have like yeah. drawn on them. Yeah, this is the ones you think Yeah, of? those are the ones, yeah. Okay, Absolutely. I asked Richard why Kubrick chose to shoot his movie here in Beckton. Kubrick wants to shoot a film set in Vietnam, 
based around a particular conflict as well. The, the mm. section of the novel, The Short Timers, that Kubrick chose to put into his script is the battle for Huey. It's a city and it's an industrial conflict. There are tanks involved, yeah. you know. It's completely different to the kind of jungles, small mm. units and helicopters that most of the other Vietnam films concentrate on. So in that sense, it makes more sense to use Beckton than you would originally think. If you just think, why shoot a Vietnam film in East London? You think, yeah, this sounds completely stupid. Mm. But it's perfect. At the end of the day, what you're looking at is you've got, yeah, a derelict space. Nobody's using it. And it's quite isolated from the rest of London. It's a large space. So you can do kind of bigger views. If you go to a, you know, mm. he could have shot this in a studio. He could have gone to Pinewood or to Elstree or something like that, like he did with The Shining. Mm. But you're quite limited and everything would look small. And if you want to kind of make kind of like big ruined landscapes, it, it's doable, but it's kind of tricky, you know? Mm. And, and what they've got is a, a ready-made large open space that already looks a bit like a war zone and you just have to dress it slightly to turn it a bit more into Vietnam. Yeah. I say just, I mean, there's a lot of work involved. The location shots for Full Metal Jacket show heavy concrete structures falling to bits, fields of rubble and weeds. Kubrick and his team demolished parts of the already half-destroyed landscape and requested that piles of rubble be left here after demolition. They set off smoke machines and lit fires to suggest the fog of war. It's a ravaged landscape, completely desolate. And although it was used as a film set, a representation of war, this is exactly how the Docklands must have looked after the heavy bombardment of the Blitz. From this photograph, what we're looking at with this grey tower, the art department have then gone and pasted on, glued on little bits of paper that have got Vietnamese advertising signs. These are all advertising signs that have come from all of that photograph research and also they sourced a load of um, Vietnamese newspapers from the late 60s through the Library of Congress on microfilm and they went through those to find things like fonts and to find advertising designs. And they have commercial companies that design and make billboards in England make up replicas of those and then they paste them, they were going to stick them up on the building. So this is their first idea of how they're going to do it. This guy here that we can see, the big smiling face, is the Hynos toothpaste man. And you see him at least twice in the film. Yeah. Um, he's, he's very important. I don't know why. It's amazingly low tech. Yeah. Everything about the kind of this pre-production thing. I mean, mm. before they did the buildings, they made little maquettes, little models, and they're made out of just balsa wood and using toy soldiers and things. They mm. planned out some of the larger shots with model tanks that they put together, you know. He sent some kid down to a model shop and just bought like 50 different tanks. The low fineness about it, it intrigues me sometimes. Yeah, I think I mean, I really this You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? 
I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together, or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question, or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. If Kubrick's film explores the duality of man, the idea that good and evil are inextricably enmeshed, then the way the film made use of this landscape exposes a similar dualism, a sense that for all its mournful, ruinous qualities, there was a great opportunity in this landscape, a sense of picturesque potential. Maybe it's only in retrospect, after the buildings have been torn down or redeveloped, and after the rubble has been cleared away, that it's possible to take this romantic view. To think that photographs of a ruined gasworks are anything other than depressing. To think that the decline of an entire industry might yield some aesthetically pleasurable results. Maybe these places are just waste grounds, graveyards of vanished productivity, been listening to car audio from the rca to listen to previous episodes visit rcaaudio.co.uk email us at car at rca.ac.uk